everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Daniel Buck. He is a fellow at the Fordham Institute, but he is first and foremost a teacher of English as a second language, and he teaches at the middle school and the high school level. And he's written some interesting stuff recently, and we wanted to have him on to come talk about things. One piece that caught my eye that Daniel wrote recently uh, was about something called restorative circles or community circles. And I wanted to ask Daniel, welcome, and see if you would tell us a little bit about what these are and why you're concerned about the way they're coming into classrooms these days. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Restorative circles are uh, an interesting little fad that seem to be growing in popularity in schools. They're, They're an aspect of the broader restorative justice, now kind of even more broadly called restorative practices. Classroom circles are just one of those practices specifically. They kind of differ from room to room, but generally the students sit in a circle. There's some sort of centerpiece in the middle. You know, it might be filled with uh, personal items from the students, candles, things like that. And then they pass around this talking piece. And what grade, what grade, what grade typically? I mean, everywhere from kindergarten up to seniors. Um, I was told to do this when I was in grad school, and it was just considered generally, if you have a class, you should be doing this. And then asking everything from how's your day to deeply personal questions like, what is trauma that you faced? Or when have you perpetuated trauma in somebody else's life, which is not exactly a conversation that belongs in a classroom. How did it get into the classroom? I mean, what is it? Is it sort of a, a kind of continuation of teachers want to be your best friend? Do teachers think that, you know, they're the only adults who can help children in this sense and that they're, you know, there's no one at home or or no one else who can serve this role? Like, what do you think is the kind of guiding philosophy here that pushes these kinds of therapeutic practices into classrooms? I mean, I think there's a lot of strands that come together, but I always come back to your own AEI's own Robert Pondicio wrote this good report about uh, how schools are becoming more and more institutions of therapy, it seems, and institutions of academic instruction. Uh, and this is just kind of the, the shining, the most galling, glaring example of that, where teachers are practically running group therapy in the classroom. But I mean, like you said, there's student mental health is in precipitous decline for all sorts of different reasons. And people are searching and grasping at solutions. And this is just a solution that came up. You know, students need, it seems, more support. And they're kind of deputizing teachers into roles that are far beyond their expertise. So, but what is the argument for this then, right? If if you see, you know, we've come out of two plus years of COVID, you've got social media pressures, kids are being bullied. So if you accept the premise that mental health conditions of our kids are in decline or that more kids are traumatized, what should schools be doing about that? What, what, what role should teachers be playing if it's not restorative circles? I mean, I think teachers should be staying within their areas of expertise, which is academic instruction. Um, As much as I might want to help one of my students through some difficulty in their life, that's not where my training is. And I know even trained counselors, trained therapists, 
trained psychiatrists can there can be negative effects basically if they if they mess something up it can make mental health problems even worse if that's going to happen with somebody who's gotten four years of graduate training i don't think that's my place to then try and push my way into another student's life if they come to me and kind of open up to me of their own free will that's one thing and you know i can get them the services they need but compelling them into that in my own classroom and kind of forcing them into that is not only uncomfortable and risky but i would say outright unethical and you know it's true and one of the things i sense is sometimes mm-hmm. not even that the kids are necessarily even in need of these kinds of services there's just sort of kind of perception oh well these kids are marginalized like based on their skin color their gender like somehow the the there's just these assumptions Mm-hmm. That they must be traumatized, you know, they're they're oppressed. And so therefore we need to create these kinds of safe spaces for kids. So what's interesting is it's not even necessarily so that they're doing work that they're not, they're not even prepared for, but there's not necessarily even evidence per se that that's the most important intervention that a kid needs in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I, I've used the phrase before, we're often pathologizing the slings and arrows of everyday life. You know, kids stressed about this or that thing. And so, well, are they suffering a mental health crisis or are they just stressed out? Because we need to differentiate between those two. You don't want to give chemotherapy for the common cold. We don't need to have these group therapy interventions for just standard difficulties of life. And I also sort of wonder about even the idea that this is a safe space. I mean, imagining for me, like, you know, a class of seventh graders where kids are encouraged to share, you know, their trauma or what other people have done to traumatize them. I mean, that seems like the opposite of a safe space if you've ever spent any time in certain kinds of middle school settings. I mean, it seems Mm -hmm. like more like an opportunity for further bullying, frankly, in a lot of cases. And and as you say, like, it seems hard to imagine that a teacher is going to be able to manage the repercussions of what is said in that particular situation. Yeah, kids are in the presence of their own bullies. There's all sorts of social dynamics that I'm not even aware of that are going on. I've been a part of these, again, as my graduate training. My professor liked to make them a normal part of class. And sometimes they were very uncomfortable because I didn't trust everyone in the classroom um, because some of them were strangers or had said things to me before that it's just, they don't need to know these personal things about my life. We don't need, I'm not going to divulge all of the personal details on this podcast called, I'm sure you two are wonderful people, but you don't need to know that about me. That's not what we're here for. We'll save that for another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering where evidence like plays a role in this. Like, so for example, you know, DEI training, anti-bias training, there's so much evidence that shows these kinds of trainings or interventions where you're separating adults by race or kids by race or viewing kids only through these singular prisms oftentimes results in more division and more lower expectations. So I'm wondering if the same thing could be applied to these kinds of restorative practices under the SEL banner, that it actually doesn't help it. In fact, it might it might increase the levels of anxiety or the levels of bullying. Is there evidence that you've seen one way or the other? So I've seen more evidence for restorative practices generally than classroom circles specifically. One of the problems with restorative practices is they often then completely push out, you know, systems of behavior 
expectations, standard consequences that a school has. And when restorative practices push out, again, typical systems of behavior and consequences, then we see upticks in bullying. We see upticks in classroom disruptions. Ironically, kids will spend more time in suspensions. So there have been some school systems. Uh, I don't have the, the research in front of me. You can see I have uh, in, in defensive suspensions at the Fordham Institute if you want to read and find all of the links that I'm going to be vaguely referencing here. A number of school districts got rid of suspensions for lower level disruptions, yep. but then they got more violence, more drugs, more fights. So kids were getting more severe suspensions and then ended up spending more time yeah. outside of class. We're not nipping it in the bud. Yeah. It, yeah. It's what Kip used to call sweating the small stuff, right? Or, or broken windows theory. Like you stop, uh, you know, stop the kid from taking the cookie out of the cookie jar. Yeah. It's the same, same argument of abolish the police then applied to schools counterintuitively, not counterintuitively, as one would expect. Police completely pull away and violence increases. If you completely get rid of consequences in a school, behavior worsens. Uh, this is a surprise to no logically thinking individual. One of the other things that you mentioned in your piece, and this sort of gets to a larger issue that's part of the public conversation now, is teachers telling students that they can uh, tell them things in confidence um, and trying to maybe build this teacher-student relationship in a way that almost excludes purposefully uh, the parent or the family. And obviously, this is this has come up in the questions in Florida about whether uh, teachers should be able to talk about uh, sexuality and sexual matters uh, with students in the classroom without their parents knowing what's being said. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that trend uh, that seems to be going on, this idea that teachers-student confidentiality or whatever it is, the relationship, it, it seems like it's almost they're they're pushing an almost kind of religious relationship here that students should be able to tell them anything and they will promise to keep it from their families. How is that related to these, this, these community circles and this kind of therapeutic idea? And, and wh where do you think that's, that's going? Is there patience in this country for that sort of thing? I think it goes back to uh, something I harp on a lot is critical pedagogy. I'm guessing you two are familiar with Paulo Freire, the uh, just very influential- Pedagogy of the depressed. Yes, pedagogy of the oppressed uh, jokingly turned to depressed by Robert yes. Pondicio. Yes. In there and everyone that he's influenced, which is basically every teacher in America that's gone through a teacher training program is at least familiar with his name, if not read that book. He wants to break down the teacher-student dichotomy. He applies the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy onto teacher-student. So we should all be co-learners together. So whereas most adults understand that you need to have student relationship, meaning there's distance there. My kids don't know all of the details of my personal life. I'm not giving them updates on if I had a bad night before. No, I am here with one purpose to teach them books, to teach them grammar, to teach them to read and write. But that is not what many of the critical pedagogues or progressive educators actively want in the classroom. I think in the teacher training schools, there's a lot of appetite for breaking down these boundaries because, again, they would say the, the teacher having authority over the student is oppressive. I mean, it's not. It's healthy 
it's loving, it's necessary, it creates a safe learning environment when you have an authority in the classroom establishing rules, whole nother rant, rant and tangent. I don't think there's much of an appetite among parents and the community at large because most of the community at large are not swimming in critical theory and critical pedagogy and all of this kind of stuff. They want their kids, parents send their kids to me to learn academics. They don't want me being their child's therapist. I don't want to be their child's therapist. Their child doesn't want me to be their therapist. It's not wise for me to be their therapist. Are you encouraged by what you're seeing across the country in terms of parents mobilizing as they start to discover what is actually happening in their schools, whether it be curricula around race and gender issues in particular, or this idea that you know, information about their kids is happening, that they're completely the only one not in the know? Are you encouraged by what you're seeing by parents stepping up to combat that? Encouraged, wary, wanting more. So encouraged, especially in local elections where turnout is very small. If you can mobilize a coalition of frustrated parents, that has huge implications when, you know, in local elections, the, the unions can mobilize and they get all of their teachers to go and vote. And that can really swing elections in their favor. And now if we kind of have this counter coalition, conservatives and basically anyone that's anti-woke, I know people have problems with that term, but we have a fighting chance on local elections. A little bit concerned because I think some of, the, some of this advocacy is going too far. You mentioned before the call, this piece that I wrote for Fordham against calling teachers groomers, implying that any teacher that wants any amount of sex education in the classroom is a pedophile. I think there's a risk of the rights just generally overplaying its hand and falling into excess. Nothing exceeds like excess. And we have, there's popular policies that we're already putting forward, school choice, popular among all demographics, even the controversial Florida bill, the parents' rights bill, or don't say gay bill, whatever you want to call it. Majority of people support that, even though the media frame is controversial. Like we're already winning this fight. And I worry there's going to be then pushback where people go too far or try and get Ruby Bridges um, taken off of a curriculum. And then three, wanting more. I'm to some extent a culture warrior, but uh, just picking culture war battles isn't enough. I mean, we need policies. We need to reform the institutions, the teacher prep programs. We need to win elections and school boards. We need school choice. There's just so much that needs to happen. Um, and it can't be just one thing. It can't just be a handful of activists, but it's like we need almost like a federalist movement that over 50, year, 50 years kind of remade American courts. We need this sustained broad coalition to remake and reform and better America's education system. And, and I think that, I mean, part of what the problem that I think uh, a lot of people broadly see with the, the move to therapy and everything else in the classroom is how much actual education it's pushing out. I mean, Ian and I always go back to this question of like, 
you know, come back to us when kids can actually read and write at grade level. Like, mm-hmm. then you and add and add and subtract. It's like, and- you know, don't don't talk to us until you got the basics down. And I yeah. think a lot of parents do have this feeling at, at in their gut, like, okay, you've spent you know several hours on this today. You've spent several hours on other kinds of political activity. You know, you've had all sorts of special guest parade in and out. Like, where's the math? Yeah. And I mean, I even think probably the best thing I, as an not a trained therapist, can do for my students is create a well-ordered classroom where they learn to read. If they are free in my classroom and as much as I can control it elsewhere in the school, if they're free from harassment, if there's uh, a mixture of, you know, you have to have a welcoming environment and some amount of fun in the classroom. But also if they leave high school and they're literate, like that's going to do amazing things for their mental health long term. And, and, and equity even. Yes. Rather than me meddling with their psyches and trying to and, and getting rid of the behavior systems that create a well-ordered, functioning, safe, physically safe school. I've been in physically unsafe schools. It's not a healthy place to be. Focusing on academics might do wonderful things for our students' mental health, even though it doesn't seem like we're focusing on this one issue, but the knock-on effects are huge. The one thing I find so refreshing about you is you're a teacher, you know, and you have the courage to actually speak these things and write these things. So I'm curious, what kind of feedback are you getting from your own colleagues, from your own sector, because I hear from a lot of teachers, they actually don't necessarily believe in a lot of these restorative practices or these other ideas, but they feel like they literally will become marginalized themselves if they speak out. So I'm curious, what's the the cost you have experienced in doing this or what's been the unexpected upside of speaking out the way that you do? Yeah. I mean, none of my students know that I do this advocacy. I don't bring this into the classroom. I don't, you know, make it part of my school brand while I'm here. Like The parents don't know that I'm doing this. If you have seen an article here and there when I'm on Fox, um, and I even, the students have asked me about it. I'm like, just give that to us. Like nobody else needs to know about that. Because again, my students don't need to know everything about my personal life. They're there to learn about Shakespeare or Frederick Douglass from me, not Ed Policy and my crackpot theories of education. I think there's been a mixture of outrage in some circles that there's a teacher that, you know, break ranks, breaks ranks. But there's also, I've been, I get so much, so many messages saying, oh my gosh, thank you so much. And even, you know, on Twitter, not real life, but every once in a while, somebody will make some snarky comment. And then like 20 people come in and be like, he speaks for us. You know, there's this huge coalition of teachers that, don't buy in to a lot of this insanity that's going on. 50% of teachers identify as moderate. What does moderate mean? Hard to say. That could mean- Depends on where you live in the country. Yes, but it at least means they're not bought into a lot of the ideological excess that's going on. And they want to see pushback to that. I have a lot of people tell me, you know, I'm liberal. I'm a Democrat. Uh, I don't agree with when you- talk about like economic policy, but thank you so much for, you know, saying what you're saying about education. I agree with you X, Y, and Z that restorative circles piece. 
I've gotten more messages and emails from that one than I ever have from anything I've written before. People just saying, oh my gosh, we, I don't want to run therapy in my classroom, but my school is making me. This is totally unsafe. This is totally unethical. This is really weird. It's, it's not right. Thank you for being the first person to raise the red flag on this one. Wow. Well, we thank you too um, for coming on our podcast. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, it was it was great talking to you and uh, we'll have links to, to your pieces uh, when the podcast goes up. So thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Daniel, thank you for your courage. Keep it up. And I know there are a lot of other teachers that support you. So hopefully you can help them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This is this has been a good time. I was glad to chat.